I'm Brandon Carey. I'm Jason Grady. This is the Medic Class Citizen Podcast. All right, everybody, welcome back. So today we're going to go over the recently published AHA updates. We're going to hit BLS, PALS, and ACLS. Yeah, or or like someone say says uh, the uh, ACLS or AHA gospel. And the G actually doesn't stand for gospel; it stands for guidelines. So I think that's probably a good place that's to start. A, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Yeah, it was. Uh, and just kind of a brief overview of everything. Essentially, I I feel like there were very few practice changes in in these updates and more theoretical stances on how things should be done. Yeah, and that's not a bad thing. I mean, you know, in 2015, AHA went away from, thankfully, the every five-year update, which, um, you know, was a, was a big problem because if uh, evidence came out you know, a year before the release of an update, it likely wasn't going to make it in that 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 current year update, and it was going to have to wait five more years to get in the next update. And then, uh, you know, maybe different stuff came out, and, you know, by the time it's released, it's five years old. So thankfully, in uh, 2015, they switched to this uh, interval update, which I think has really helped um, for a couple of reasons. Number one, it gets information out a whole lot faster and second of all, each um, update is not uh, met with extreme uh, drastic changes. All right, so let's start with BLS. So essentially, um, like I was saying, that there's a lot of uh, theoretical things that they've changed. We're going to go over some of that. So a sixth link was added to all four chains of survival. And when we talk about the chains of survival, we're talking about adult out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, adult-in-hospital cardiac arrest, pediatric out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, and pediatric in-hospital cardiac arrest. So the sixth chain that they added was recovery. So essentially, it recognizes that recovery from cardiac arrest extends far beyond initial hospitalization. And Jason, this is something that you've talked about before, you know, the difference between ROSC and actually surviving, walking out of the hospital alive. Yeah, this is this is actually a big deal. This is actually one of the things that I was actually very encouraged um, by what they've done because over the years, um, it, we have a problem with um, segregating out or compartmentalizing these different forms of treatment for cardiac arrest. And ACLS has been geared more towards the pre-hospital. You know, the first thirty minutes, forty-five minutes of a cardiac arrest. And of course, then, you know, we get Ross and we high five each other and we call that a save and then they die in the ED or they die a couple days later. Um, EMS calls it a save and the system calls it a death. So I was very encouraged actually to see uh, AHA kind of move more towards an entire system of care and even beyond hospital discharge um, because uh, I think we can talk later. There's uh, actually some pretty pretty compelling evidence um, for following these patients out at least six months, because um, we're seeing some benefit uh, even from the from from hospital discharge uh, to, to even six months out. Awesome, very cool. Uh, and another great thing is that we actually now have a standalone uh, opioid associated resuscitation algorithm which, you know, 
that's another advantage of not having this whole five-year thing. We've hit a pretty hard opioid crisis. We've been in it for a while. Um, and thankfully, now we have a standalone algorithm, which is primarily based on respiratory status. So essentially, if the situation is suspected to be an opioid emergency and the patient has a normal respiratory pattern, you focus on preventing deterioration and you consider Narcan. And this is always something that I talk about with students. It's something that I try to practice myself um, in that if if there is an abnormal respiratory pattern, give Narcan and support ventilations aggressively. But when we talk about giving Narcan, titrate to respiratory effort. Don't just slam two milligrams. You know, I mean, that's, that's whenever people can seize, they can vomit and aspirate. Um, what are your thoughts on that, Jason? Yeah, I think that's uh, pretty much a rookie mistake um, that everybody probably makes at least once. Um, maybe if you don't learn lessons quickly, you make it the mistake twice um, of giving a full two milligrams of Narcan to someone with an opioid overdose. And uh, like you said, they have seizures, they can uh, aspirate, and uh, even they can come up swinging. Absolutely. Um, you know, you've, uh, you, you've, you've not only uh, taken someone uh, out of a comatose state and woken them up, but you just completely ruined a high in that, yes, you saved their life, but they wouldn't really need to go that drastic. So I completely agree that titrating that um, to bring up respirations uh, and hemodynamics is really where we need to aim instead of completely um, waking them up or at least waking them up too quickly. So moving on in the BLS updates, uh, I thought this was interesting because for every protocol or for every update, you would think that there's a reason behind it. But this update reinforces the need for CPR in pregnant patients. I thought that was very interesting. So I wonder if, if people were not doing compressions on pregnant patients or I'm not really sure. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I've t you know, I don't know about you, but speaking with with some people, uh, you know, we just seem to have all of these algorithms for these just extremely specific patients. You know, whether it's a neonate or a pediatric or an adult, and we we know, and this is actually you know something that that uh, Dr. Antevi speaks to very well. That when it's this normal situation, we know what to do, but when all of a sudden a wrench is thrown in it. And we start overthinking things of can pregnant uh, people, can pregnant women get certain medications? Do we mm. shock differently? Do we do chest compressions differently? And so, you know, I think, again, to their credit, um, and a lot of the stuff on the BLS, they're not changes. There's just a lot of reinforcement. Um, I really think this was one that they went after as just a reinforcement of what we really need to do, not only for the mother, but then also for the baby. And, uh, you know, it may not change our treatment on scene, but it hopefully certainly changes our mentality and our priorities of getting off the scene and what we may have to do with uh, delivering this baby. Absolutely. And with that said, uh, they also reinforce what to do if ROSC is achieved. Um, upon ROSC in a pregnant patient, uh, they reinforce that you need to position the patient on their left side. So that's just, it makes good sense. Don't want to cause increased hypotension so um yeah and like a lot of this stuff you know that's stuff that uh you know we've all been taught we all know and so they're they're actually just reinforcing that which i think is a really good thing yeah so this is something and something else that we see in these updates are 
things that some people have been doing for a while, but now they're just saying to do it. <laughs> um, and I think this is one of those things in reference to infant CPR hand placement. So it is now acceptable to use the heel of one hand to perform compressions if the two thumbs encircling chest is not providing adequate depth. So that just goes to show the importance of good chest compressions. And if, if your hands aren't large enough or if they're not strong enough, use the heel of one hand. Yeah, and I think that goes actually to, to one of the things that they, um, they reinforce uh, kind of towards the, the end of potential harm from CPR that uh, there really is, especially when it comes to kids, it's really difficult um, to harm them uh, with CPR. Their chest wall is incredibly compliant, and I think we just have this mentality that, oh, we just have to be gentle with these kids. Um, well, we really don't. I mean, we've got to save their life. And, mm -hmm. you know, if uh, the, the two the hands encir encir uh, encircling the chest is not working, and but that you know that brings up another thing. What does it mean? It's not working, mm. um, and that's you know I think that's just an experience thing of knowing like I'm just not getting enough compression here. I need to switch uh, to using the heel of the hand, and then not being so worried about hurting the the patient because you know remember they're they're dead. You can't make that situation worse other right. than not um, reviving them or not getting Ross. Yep, absolutely. And with that to say, uh, they also recommend an increase in ventilation rates during CPR with infants and children. Um, and uh, in the updates, they say that there is significant data that shows an increase in ROSC for infants less than one year of age whenever they are ventilated at 30 breaths per minute. And if the patient is greater than one year of age, ventilate at a rate of 25 breaths per minute. So, yeah, that's another, and that's another thing that's just, uh, man, that is just so difficult. And again, going back, I'll, I'll just point out the, the discussions that we've had with uh, Dr. Antevi and some of the things that he has uh, really reinforced is being able to understand those patients and when we need to do uh, certain things. But also the thing that he points out really well is that we don't need to separate these patients out. Uh, you know, in our in our training, in our education, in our thinking. I mean, these are cardiac arrests. A cardiac arrest is a cardiac arrest. Now, the cause of that cardiac arrest may be different, or obviously is different um, from an infant to a child uh, to an adult. Um, but uh, you know, the other thing that they reinforce is debriefing um, and the team and the team dynamics. You know, these are these are unique patients when it comes to the pediatrics and neonates. Uh, we need to be training on this we need to be doing scenarios we need to be doing simulation because they are very low volume um, everyone can agree with that uh, but when it comes down to it and when it comes time to treat these patients we really need to be our minds clear and know exactly what to do and to what extent to do it absolutely and that also kind of leads to the next point whenever we talk about the team dynamics um, something that Dr. Antevi talks about a lot as well is the stress level of a pediatric arrest versus an adult arrest. Um, whether that's due to lack of training or whether that is due to um, just the, the stress of the moment that we put on ourselves, this edition enforces the importance of team debriefings for better performance, quality improvement, 
and in hopes of prevention of PTSD. So that's kind of common sense, I would think. Yeah, and that's, I think, a lot of the BLS, you know, quote unquote, update. Um, there's very few things in here that are updates, but I really am appreciative to them um, of reinforcing um, some of this stuff. The team dynamics, you know, we, we, we don't do that very well, or we haven't done that very well for the last couple of years. Um, you know, the, the lay rescue or chest compressions only uh, versus uh, standard CPR is incredibly important. The getting the 911 dispatch assisted um, chest compressions and CPR in is incredibly important. And there are a lot of people listening going, yeah, we've done that for a long time. Um, but you might not know that there are also a lot of places out there that don't do it because they say, well, it's not in the guidelines. It's not a standard. It's not something that we're required to do. Well, hopefully with the 2020 updates, um, we can at least use them to, to kind of point back the importance of this. Yes. And man, you're hitting this, the segues perfectly in this, in this episode, the reinforcement of the importance of stroke education with lay people. Um, and the reason I said that, that what you just talked about is a segue is because with dispatchers, with, um, any type of lay people education that we could do, um, stroke education and utilizing the fast, uh, the fast scale. So facial droop, arm weakness, speech impairment, time to call 911. So um, they're really recommending getting out there and being a little more aggressive with stroke therapy. Or not stroke, sorry, not stroke therapy, but uh, stroke education. Yeah, and I think the, what they've done a good job here with is, number one, going in with a complete system of care, but then also reinforcing and really paying close attention to the most important parts of the system of care, which are the first med the first contact, not even necessarily mm -hmm. the first medical contact, but the first contact, which is likely going to be a family member or someone of the public. Uh, and then it's going to go to the 911 centers. And so those are the two areas that um, are, are pretty clearly showing if we spend the most time, resources, education, and training on those areas, that's when we're going to start seeing uh, improvements. Absolutely. All right, so on to our next point. Um, AHA is now recommending that lay people and BLS providers administer aspirin in the case of non-traumatic chest pain. Well, that's pretty cool. They can get the ball rolling uh, as far as the uh, pharmacology benefits there. Uh, research has shown the benefits of administration outweigh the risks and the chances of side effects, uh, unless, of course, there's a an, an allergy to it. But Yeah, and that's another no-brainer. I mean, that's something that we've known for many, many years. In fact, uh, we know that with acute coronary syndrome, that uh, the aspirin uh, decreases mortality by 25%. Yeah. Um, so non-traumatic chest pain, yeah, you, you know, if you if you have an allergy and you know it, yeah, don't don't give it. But uh, uh, what most people call an allergy is not typically an allergy anyway. Mm -hmm. So um, the benefit far outweighs the risk. Yeah. Um, so I think that's another good thing. Yeah. And like I like we said earlier, you know, this is these updates. A lot of people are being like, yeah, this is this is common sense. We've been doing this for a long time. Well, that just shows you that sometimes it takes a long time for them to catch up. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And and so this is what, you know, and this is, you know, probably discussion for another time or even longer discussion, but how do you get all these people involved? How do you get lay people to do CPR? How do you get 
a 911 center to um, give uh, CPR instructions? How do you have public access uh, AED program? You know, these are all these are all things that are starting to change a lot. And really, EMS and hospitals are going to have to lead the way on this. And so I am uh, I'm, I'm grateful to AHA. And I don't say that a lot, but I'm grateful to AHA for reinforcing all of these things on this end that are just absolutely crucial. I mean, they are the make or break whether or not a patient's going to live or die. Bystander CPR, we know that. Bystander AED, uh, we know that. Um, and so it's good to see that uh, they spent a lot of time in their writing groups to reinforce that. Absolutely. And this one, <clears throat> this will be the final BLS update bullet point. Uh, it is also a no-brainer. And if if you want to kind of go into the science of this very briefly, Jason, they are reinforcing a high chest compression fraction correlating with a high uh, percentage of ROSC. So. Yeah, so for, for people that aren't familiar with that term, um, chest compression fraction is really the percentage of time you're pressing on the chest versus not pressing on the chest. So if you look at the things that take away from pressing on the chest, number one, rhythm checks, uh, number two, ventilation. So anytime that we are off the chest, we know that we decrease circulation. Now, there are a few things moving the patient uh, and whatnot, but um, this is something that's been reported. Now, this is can be a little bit, um, a little bit skewed, especially when we get to mechanical chest compressions and whatnot. And I think we got to kind of... Um, separate out chest compression fraction from bystander CPR uh, and EMS, because I think they're going to be a little bit different, especially once we get a patient intubated um, or uh, a supraglottic airway, that chest compression uh, fraction is going to change. But really what it's showing and what we, we need to be mindful of is we really need to get that chest compression fraction really up in the high 80s, 90%. Uh, to really get uh, good outcomes. All right, cool. So let's dive into PALS. We have quite a few PALS updates here, uh, which is which is good. My favorite of which, and I know this is probably going to be a uh, a big point for Jason as well, is the very first bullet point we have in that AHA is now reinforcing the importance of systems of care and processing data for outcomes. Yeah, of course. That is uh, those two things, systems of care and data, uh, you know, the, the two things that we lack the most in EMS that are the most important. Um, you know, it was uh, it we we were able to host a conference recently uh, where we talked a lot with with some of the physicians about data. And one of the questions um, I think that I asked was, how do you take someone who says, well, I just want to treat a patient. I don't want to fill out a PCR. I just want to save a life. It doesn't matter what the uh, documentation is as long as that patient lived. And, and, and of course, that is the most important thing. Uh, but uh, one of the comments from one of the physicians that I just loved was, uh, the work that you do on that patient saves the patient's life. The documentation that you provide and the data you provide saves everyone else's life. Yep. Um, and so I was, uh, again, very, uh, very pleased to see the importance of this, of not just systems of care, because it's not just about getting ROSC. It's about a complete recovery. And we are not going to understand that unless we actually get the data. All right. So our next bullet point is this is pretty significant. So now narrow and wide complex tachycardia are combined into one algorithm. 
And uh, before we even go further into it, I'll just I'll throw a little spoiler in there. Amiodarone is never even mentioned. So that is one change. That's definitely one change to PALS uh, from the previous update. And that, you know, we used to consider amiodarone five milligrams per kilogram. Uh, that is not even mentioned in this in this protocol. Uh, now, adenosine is the only drug recommended. The algorithm, like I said, does not mention amiodarone for stable, narrow, complex tachycardia. They want you to do vagal maneuvers, then the adenosine doses. Adenosine dose has not changed. Uh, stable, wide, complex adenosine, uh, and then expert consultation before further measures. So, uh, unstable, if it's unstable and narrow, if there's an IV present, Adenosine, then sync cardiovert. However, do not delay cardioversion for an IV. That's that's going to be one of the uh, the big sticking points there. I think Jason, that's something that you've talked about working in the cath lab. You know, you guys don't mess around. If, if there's an arrhythmia, you pop it pretty quickly. Yeah, we don't need to be really afraid of electricity. That's going to hurt. Yeah, it's going to cause uh, some some discomfort, uh, but you can get past that but you have Absolutely. complete control over electricity. You have very little control over, over medications. Yep. Um, and for unstable, wide complex tachycardia is uh, sync cardioversion. They don't even want you fooling around looking for an IV. Uh, just go straight to sync cardioversion. So a brief overview of your doses, folks. We're going to go adenosine first. Your first dose will do 0.1 milligrams per kilogram with a max of 6 milligrams. And then your second dose, if needed, is going to be double that at 0.2 mg per kg at a max of 12 milligrams. All right. And as far as uh, sync cardioversion doses go, 0.5 to 1 joule per kilogram, and you can increase that to 2 joules per kilogram if needed. So really no changes there as far as the uh, medication and electricity doses. So I think this is good. I think it simplifies the algorithm, and they're kind of just getting to what's important, which is correcting the rhythm instead of playing around with a lot of medications that may or may not work, may or may not be beneficial. Yeah, and I think that probably helps with our psyche a little bit too of not having to uh, kind of filter through all of those different medications. We can kind of just go to one, um, do the weight-based dose, and go yeah. for it. All right. Uh, so, and just like in BLS, uh, the opioid resuscitation algorithm is included, and it's going to be the same as adults. However, you know, the, the dose of Narcan will be different. It'll be weight-based. So, But there is an actual opioid resuscitation algorithm for pediatrics. All right, so the next on the PALS list, uh, they're recommending a checklist that's been developed for post-arrest care, which that's good. Again, like Jason was saying, that kind of takes the stress away from things and gives people an organized approach. So, um, And by the way, you can find all of these resources through the AHA material and through the AHA website, including a copy of this checklist. So if you want to print a bunch of these off, put them in your ambulance, uh, don't think that'd be a bad idea. So yeah, we got to get we got to get past this idea of uh, I don't need a checklist because I know. First of all, no, you don't. Mm -hmm. um, how many pediatric arrests have you run in your entire career, or how much how many pediatric arrests has anyone run in even a long career? It's very few. Um, and uh, even if you work inside of a pediatric hospital, and you there's number one, there's not a lot of arrests there, but they're probably working the most arrests, and they're using checklists. Yeah. Um, you know, pilots use checklists every time they take off and land, uh, no matter if 
how many times they've done it. This is a, this is a big deal, and it's for the most one of the most vulnerable um, people uh, or groups of people uh, that we're going to treat. I think we owe it to them to do absolutely. This. And if you work so hard to save them, why not work so hard to keep them? You know, yeah, that's, it's not uh, as clear cut for why they even had an arrest as an adult. You know, an adult has an arrest. You know, we all know this that they have arrests for reasons that we know why they have arrests. They have acute coronary syndrome. Kids have arrests for a whole host of reasons, um, probably some reasons we've never even heard of. Yeah. Um, and so we, we really need to narrow, try to narrow it down as best we can. Absolutely. So let's go through the checklist really quickly. Uh, checkbox number one, oxygenation and ventilation. You know, obviously, as, if, as we talk about the physiology and the pathophysiology of infants and children, uh, they are very oxygen dependent and they are very rate driven. So focusing on those two things with this checklist is going to be very important. So oxygenation and ventilation, bullet number one. Bullet number two, hemodynamic monitoring, including labs, ins and outs, pressors, and fluid boluses. So with that to say, uh, keep in mind that this is a ROSC algorithm, or excuse me, this is a, a ROSC checklist for both in-hospital cardiac arrest and out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. So again, labs, ins and outs, so urinary output, uh, pressors in order to get hemodynamics back up, and fluid boluses if needed. The next bullet point on the checklist is neuromonitoring and seizure treatment. So um, obviously, and that kind of goes into the next one, uh, but we want to treat any seizures because we don't want to be burning up glucose in these little kids. They don't have a lot, so we don't want to burn up what they do have. Going into the next one, prevent shivering, so keep the patient warm. Also, and targeted temperature management if you have that at your disposal and in your protocol. Uh, next off, if you have the ability to measure electrolytes, again, if it's an in-hospital cardiac arrest or if your service carries uh, iStats or something to where you can monitor those, uh, measuring electrolytes and glucose checks. So uh, field providers definitely should be able to monitor glucose and administer D5, D10 if needed. Um, and also sedate, especially if you have the intubation, you don't just want to take the tube out. Um, so sedate and treat with anxiolytics if possible. So likely the same benzos that you're treating the seizures with, you could be um, administering for some uh, sedation measures as well. All right, so next on the list, we're going to talk about endotracheal tubes. So cuffed endotracheal tubes are now preferred over non-cuffed, which kind of makes sense, but also we do understand why people were hesitant to use cuffed endotracheal tubes in infants. Uh, so apparently data has shown a decreased occurrence of reintubation whenever a cuff tube is utilized. That makes sense. Uh, a decreased occurrence of aspiration and a decreased need for tube replacement. Um, and, you know, over the, uh, over the time of my career and during the time of my academic career as well, I've understood the need for, you know, staying away from cuffed ET tubes because of supraglottic stenosis and causing potential damage to the trachea. Um, however, they're just showing that that is not, it's not a common thing. It's very rare. Yeah. I think like with a lot of stuff, um, things started out as uh, understanding pathophysiology and thinking that things were, should be the way they are because of our understanding. And then when you 
actually study it or again you look at the occurrence of it it's so rare why are we why are we harming them in other areas to try to prevent something that we just assume is going to happen absolutely so this is one that I would really like to uh, talk to Dr. Antevi about because he is he's big on the utilization of epinephrine in infants and children um, and when it should and should not be used. But this next bullet point, data has proven that during non-shockable cardiac arrest, so we're talking about PEA and asystole, early epinephrine administration is correlated with an increase in ROSC. So again, this is for pediatric patients. Therefore, the non-shockable cardiac arrest algorithm has been updated to emphasize epi administration in less than five minutes from the start of CPR. Yeah, it's interesting that the, uh, and I'm not as familiar with the pediatric world, but that uh, this actually correlates that uh, with the adult world that we're going to talk about, I know, in just uh, in the next section that, uh, um, you know, early epinephrine use does show a benefit in ROSC. Um, and it is interesting that that correlates as well with the pediatrics. Absolutely. Uh, this next one, uh, this is, this is great. This is definitely, if you think about it, it makes sense, but I'm glad that they're talking about it, but diastolic blood pressure is very important, um, when we're talking about survivability and outcomes. So, uh, Peds that are undergoing resuscitation who also had art line monitoring showed vast improved outcomes with a diastolic blood pressure of 25 to 30 millimeters of mercury. Um, so, and we know the importance of diastole. We know the importance of filling. So that just, that makes complete sense. Yeah. And also to uh, remember that coronaries fill in diastole. So when we're talking about coronary artery perfusion pressure, uh, which in adults anyway is what causes cardiac arrest, lack of coronary perfusion pressure. Uh, it's actually more important to get that diastolic up. So that is, uh, that's good to see that also in the recommendations. Absolutely. Uh, let's see, they're reinforcing that post-arrest seizures need to be treated. And that makes sense. That makes complete sense. If a child is seizing, there's two things that aren't, that aren't happening they aren't using their glucose appropriately. And even more importantly, they're not breathing. So um, treating those seizures definitely is important. So they're just reinforcing that there. Nothing earth shattering. Um, this, is, uh, this is speaking right to our heartstrings on this next one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of, uh, of, all the, of all the stuff we've done in the uh, brow beating we've done we've we've given everyone with uh, fluids it was really nice to see yes the, the next recommendation of fluid boluses during uh, septic or hypovolemic shock leading to fluid overload mm -hmm. and then uh, you know having if you could see what has to be done in the hospital with de-resuscitating um, I think that would really change the way and again going back to the system of care Right, so it's not just EMS trying to get the blood pressure to a certain point at all costs, regardless. So if it takes a lot of fluid to get the blood pressure there, we call that a win. It's not a win. We get yeah. the blood pressure there, but there's a tremendous cost in the critical care area. Um, they are going to have to do a lot of work to try to get rid of that fluid. Um, so we've, uh, you know, we've talked about this extensively with adults, but now the recommendation is uh, even more with, with pediatrics showing that uh, 
the fluid overload is detrimental to these kids. That's one thing that I really loved about this update or this recommendation is that they included the consequences of fluid overload. Like you're saying, they talk about how there's extensive ventilator requirements uh, and, and likely critical care intervention. And the bolus that they suggested was small titrated boluses of five to 10 milliliters per kilogram with continuous lung sound reassessment, not, not every five minutes but continuous lung sound reassessment. Yeah, so. that's, a, that's a fairly big shift from the 20 cc's or 20 milliliters per kilogram that uh, so many of us were taught. And, you know, unfortunately, the fluid thing, that's just something that we have in our toolbox. And so we think that, uh, oh, that's what we have to use when in turn, uh, turns out we don't have to. Absolutely. Um, on the note of sepsis, uh, the next point, we're talking about pressors. And this is interesting. I'd really like to dive into the data on this one uh, because pressors are another heartstring of ours that they're, that they're plucking on here. Um, and they're showing that norepinephrine and epinephrine, oddly enough, have proven to be more favorable than dopamine, which in the adult world, it was norepinephrine and dopamine versus epinephrine, correct? Correct. So I'd, I'd really like to see the data on that and see if, uh, if there were certain doses utilized or, you know, how it was used. Yeah. And then uh, the next thing is uh, the blood product administration. Uh, you know, no, another thing that we have uh, spoken about and uh, talked about extensively. And so another good thing to see, to see here. Now, this often can be, you know, kind of pie in the sky. Not everybody has access to this. Uh, and you have to really kind of know your resources. But again, just for hemor hemorrhagic shock, it just reinforces the fact that if they're losing blood products, you have to replace them with, with blood products. That pumping them full of fluid, 20 cc's per kilogram, is not going to be beneficial for these kids. Absolutely. Um, and last but not least, uh, in children with myocarditis, with which... If this child, if a child does have myocarditis, endocarditis, any type of um, infection or inflammation of the heart or cardiomyopathy with low cardiac output, we know that that's a horrible situation. That's a sick, sick kid, and uh, they are at a high risk of a poor outcome. But it is recommended to use, which this is very exciting, ECMO, so um, ECLS measures to prevent cardiac arrest. And I know that Jason, you've been able to utilize ECMO firsthand. That's something that you do very frequently in the cath lab. So, I mean, maybe I know you've, you've, I don't know if you've ever done it on a pediatric patient, but you've seen the miracles that this thing works um, as far as resuscitation. Yeah. Thankfully, no, I've never had to do it on a kid. Um, we, we only treat adults in uh, in the place where I work, but this is just another really good emphasis on a system of care um, because this is the the type of patient that uh, you know. And, and as people are listening to this, you really have to know what are your resources. Are you are you within twenty thirty minutes of a pediatric center that can do ECMO? Are you within a couple hours? Are you going to have to go? to a to a hospital an outside hospital first before you before you transfer this or can you make the decision to uh take a patient directly there either by ground or by air or by other means um, but this just really enforces again that whole system of care and especially in the pre-hospital setting that 
um, EMTs and paramedics really have to understand their area, their resources, and what these kids are going to need. Because if these kids get taken to the wrong hospital and they arrest, you're not going to have this opportunity. Uh, but if you have the ability to get them to a place that can do ECLS um, or ECMO, uh, they are going to have a much better outcome and uh, the system is going to work a whole lot better for them. All right. So that was good. Um, let's kind of round up, Jason. Let's kind of, let's talk about five things, five things to take away. Cause that was kind of a lot of information in a pretty short amount of time. Um, so first off to me, I think it's, uh, I think it's important that we remember that narrow and wide complex tachycardias are now under the same roof. They're under the same algorithm and, uh, we are no longer using amiodarone. We're only using adenosine. The adenosine doses have not changed and the electricity dosages have not changed. Yeah, I think that makes it easier. The second one is really just a checklist. And uh, I think that's easy enough to, you, you can find that online um, on the AHA guidelines. The checklist is important. Absolutely. Third, uh, we want to make sure that you guys remember that the recommendation to utilize cuffed endotracheal tubes whenever intubating infants and children. Uh, this may be something that pre-hospital services have to search for because I know in most airway kits in the back of an ambulance, they're uncuffed up until about four and a half to five. So maybe something we have to search for. Yeah. The next is going to be the fluid overload um, on uh, sepsis, hypovolemic shock. Don't fluid overload. Start with pressors, leave a fed and epinephrine um, are, or I'm sorry, norepinephrine and epinephrine are superior to dopamine. Check your weight based doses on that. But uh, pressors better than fluids unless you're going to give blood. Absolutely. Blood, blood, blood. And last but not least, uh, knowing where your ECMO-capable facilities are, because those are going to be your transport destinations, or they should be, um, as they are highly recommending the use of ECLS measures to prevent cardiac arrest and likely to, to treat the recovery from cardiac arrest. All right, so so next is the ACLS updates. I think this is probably what most most people are more in tune to. This is the ACLS that you have to take every year, uh, do your updates. These are the ones that are the most common types of patients. But uh, so I'll, I'll just start with just asking uh, everybody that's listening right now. If I were to ask you one-on-one, uh, -on -one, what is the survival rate of out-of-hospital cardiac arrest for your service? Would you be able to tell me? Now, I don't mean, um, do you sit around the table and start talking about, oh, I had this survivor, oh, you had that survivor, oh, it looks like uh, you know, our, our survival rate is this percentage. I, I'm gonna guess, unless you, unless you actually report um, to a, a entity, a registry uh, such as CARES um, or uh, an AHA get with the guidelines, uh, resuscitation, you likely do not know your cardiac arrest um, outcomes. So one of the things that AHA has done is um, really reinforced, uh, like with the pedi with pediatrics, the importance of systems of care, which we've really talked about. But again, the data for outcomes. If we do not have these data, then you are not going to know what to change. And um, so as uh, as we as we said before, as you're doing your PCRs. Uh, yeah, that's not going to do much for that patient that you're treating. The work that you did for that patient is going to matter, but your report 
the, those data that uh, go into those registries and those reports back are really what's going to change things. Unfortunately, um, in cardiac, in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, our survival rate is less than 10%, and that has remained unchanged um, for nearly 60 years now. Uh, we are just now starting to get a handle on this. So um, as uh, your leadership uh, comes to you and says, hey, we need these fields filled out, we need these data, um, you'll know that uh, it is incredibly, incredibly important. So uh, not a lot of changes uh, to the ACLS uh, updates, um, a few uh, old school stuff and a few uh, reinforcements. But one of the first things that they reinforce is early use of epinephrine, one to 10,000 in non-shockable arrest rhythms. Um, the uh, early use really should be within 10 minutes of the collapse um, for the best benefit. Uh, there are uh, a few observational studies, one out of the University of Arizona, that showed that the uh, within 10 minutes shows uh, a, a benefit. However, um, I will say that American Heart is quick to point out that uh, there's a benefit to ROSC. However, the use of epinephrine is still shows very little benefit um, to overall outcomes. And, um, you know, that's not to say, you know, we've talked about this before. It's not to say that epinephrine is not important. It's not good to use. If you are going to use it earlier is better. Uh, we also know that the more epinephrine you use, the less likely they are going to survive. Um, but, uh, you know, so mm -hmm. one of the other things, uh, well, especially when we talk about non-shockable arrests, we talk about PEA. I, I hate the term PEA. Uh, PEA, uh, pulseless electrical activity, pulseless uh, really just because you can't feel it, um, which is why I think, uh, you know, for, for another talk, uh, the use of ultrasound that uh, perhaps epinephrine works well on non-shockable arrest rhythms because PEA may not actually be PEA. There actually be somewhat of a perfusing rhythm. You just can't feel um, a radial or uh, ephemeral. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I know uh, there's a lot of talk out there of the utilization of norepinephrine in those situations, right? Yeah, there, there, there is. I, I still, you know, I think that needs to be studied. I, I think all of this stuff that we talk about, you know, even the recommendations uh, that American Heart, and one of the things we didn't really talk about at the beginning was if you look at the, the recommendations, they classify them into certain categories as, you know, a level um, uh, recommendation level A, or sorry, level one, two, and three, and two as two A and two B, and then a level of evidence whether it's a randomized control study, whether it's observational, or whether it's non-randomized. Um, and so just because there's a recommendation doesn't mean that there's much data behind it. Um, so as we talk about things like um, levofed or norepinephrine uh, intra-arrest, um, while it may seem to make sense, it really does need to be studied before we you know, start uh, making absolute uh, practice changes. Uh, the next thing uh, is uh, antiarrhythmics. Uh, <laughs> for some of you old folks out there, uh, you remembered a drug called uh, lidocaine. Uh, lidocaine was there, uh, you know, before 2000 as the only antiarrhythmic we had other than Bertillium. Um, and so I know there's a lot of people here like Bertilla, what? Yeah, Bertillium. <laughs> it's an old drug. 
old thing that us old guys used to give. Um, I actually think they stopped uh, making it because they ran out of, uh, I think, the ingredients. Um, the plutonium. And so they stopped. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So they stopped making Brazilian. Uh, and so lidocaine uh, was really our only choice of antiarrhythmic until until 2000 when cortisone or amiodarone uh, came about. And then as the time went on, uh, lidocaine came out of the standards uh, and it was just amiodarone. And then now lidocaine is back in uh, the standards. Uh, one of the nice things about amiodarone, it's a single dose of uh, or single uh, 300 milligram bolus. And then the second one, of course, is 150 milligrams. So if you've taken ACLS or you've known these guidelines for the last several years, it has been only amiodarone. Well, lidocaine, it's not new. It's actually one of the older drugs and it's come back in and it's one to one and a half milligrams per kilogram for the first dose. And then you cut that in half. So a 0.5 to 0.75 milligrams per kilogram. Um, even in uh, prior to 2010, when lidocaine was in there in the recommendations, you would find most people that, that would stick just with amiodarone, um, mostly due to the dosing. It's not weight-based. There's no calculations. Uh, it's easy to do. Uh, anecdotally, I'll tell you that I've seen lidocaine work um, by the studies and by American Heart's own admission. There have been no trials that have shown a survival benefit to lidocaine versus amiodarone. If you look back at one of the uh, podcasts that we did, one of the article review, reviews we did, we did um, one of the uh, resuscitation outcome consortium trials. Uh, it was a uh, blinded randomized trial of, called ALPS, which was amiodarone versus lidocaine versus uh, placebo. And there showed very little or in fact, no um, benefit to amiodarone versus lidocaine. So, um, with that, and there's a lot of nuances there as well, but with that, um, lidocaine is now back in the algorithm. Um, yeah, so moving on, so, so we have the system of care, we have early use of epinephrine, especially with uh, shockable rhythms, and now we have, an, we have uh, lidocaine along with amiodarone. So the other one is ROSC, and you know, we, we talk about ROSC, and we say things like, um, well, yeah, you got ROSC, but they didn't walk out of the hospital. Well, all I know is if you don't get ROSC, you're definitely not walking out of the hospital. So ROSC is still <laughs> incredibly, incredibly important. Now, if we get ROSC and they don't walk out of the hospital, that's another problem we've got to solve. But ROSC is still incredibly important. But we also have to start thinking outside the box a little bit. And this is why, again, I think American Heart has done a good job with these updates of this thing that we call peri-arrest. Mm. Um, so before the arrest and right after the arrest, or before they go, before they go into arrest. So uh, they really enforce, uh, reinforce the uh, treatment of um, hypoxemia, but we have to make sure that we don't hype, cause hyperoxia. Uh, and of course, we do that when we intubate patients and we, um, you know, we think we're squeezing the bag once every six seconds and instead we're, we're breathing for the patient about 600 times a minute. Um, and so we're causing all sorts of problems, way, way too much oxygen, way too much reperfusion injury. Um, and uh, we're also decreasing blood flow uh, back to the heart. So uh, we really need to uh, target our ventilations to not only pulse ox. And I say that kind of tongue in cheek, like I hate pulse oxes. Um, uh, the CO2, the end tidal CO2 is probably 
the best measure of how well, in my estimation, the best measure of how well a patient is being ventilated because we're not just dealing with ventilation, we're dealing, we're dealing with cellular respiration. And when we keep that, that, uh, that CO2 between 35 and 45, we know that we have good cellular respiration. So, yeah, I think that's um, going to take some, some discipline as well, just because, you know, what do we want to do for a patient that's sick? I'm going to give them a ton of oxygen. So it's going to definitely take some discipline and some, some mindset changes during any type of truly any type of ACS or um, this situation, ROSC, to not just flood the oxygen in. Yeah. And I don't know. I mean, I guess, I guess, you know, thinking in my own mind, you know, when you, when you see someone who's not breathing, you think you got to make up for lost time. And that just absolutely isn't the case. And it's not just uh, pre-hospital. And there's been lots of, uh, lots of trials and lots of um, studies, observational studies that have shown um, that paramedics overventilate patients. This is one of the things why I think intubation during a cardiac arrest is, is dangerous um, even if you can get the, uh, the tube while you are doing chest compressions, I think it's just dangerous because we overventilate patients, but it's not just EMS. You go into any, any ED, respiratory therapist, um, anesthesiologist, a lot of people are, are doing this and can be uh, completely harmful. So the other thing with ROSC, and this is kind of talking about with the pediatrics or stuff that we've talked about before is maintaining that blood pressure. Now, this is the thing that I think is a little bit dangerous when we talk about, you know, maintaining a systolic blood pressure of 90 millimeter, millimeters of mercury, because we end up calling this a gospel. Like you live with a 90 and above, you die with a 90 and less. Um, and how we actually get there, American Heart, I still think incorrectly pushes fluids post cardiac arrest. I think that is wrong. Well, and you have good basis to think that because of the research that you've been involved with and, uh, you know, all the data that you gathered with your team. Yeah, and just think about it from a, from a, a if, if it's, if blood's not leaving, if fluid is not leaving, the hypotension is not caused from lack of fluid. And, you know, we can talk all day long about RV infarcts and all that nonsense that people want to try to justify giving fluids. There is no justification for giving fluids post-arrest. It is all about pressors. And, you know, we know that over 90% of cardiac arrests are caused from acute coronary syndrome and most likely STEMI. And if we, you know, they're, you're almost by definition, you're in cardiogenic shock if your blood pressure is less than 90 post-arrest. And, um, you know, vasopressors at that point are just work really, really well. It gets them back up to where they need to be, stabilizes them hemodynamically, and they're usually pretty good to go um, after that. All right, next up on the ACLS list, um, this is another one of those things that I think people have been doing for a long time, but now they just put it down on paper. (laughs) Uh, Bradycardia doses have changed for atropine. So the atropine bolus is now one milligram instead of 0.5 milligrams. Now the max dose and the time intervals did not change. So we're still doing to a max of three milligrams and we're pushing one milligram every three to five minutes. So uh, the only thing that's changed is that, again, our bolus is now one milligram instead of 0.5. Yeah, and I'm okay with this. Um, you know, I think it's uh, whether or not atropine is going to work. Atropine doesn't work on all bradycardias, depending on, um, you know, what the cause is. 
And, um, you know, I'm okay with this. This is, uh, instead of sneaking up on it with, with 0.5, go ahead and give the full, um, the full milligram. It's, uh, I think, you know, anecdotally, we've seen that it doesn't do a whole lot different between 0.5 and 1. Why sneak up on it? If yeah. they're truly hypotensive and are truly unstable and it's a bradycardia, let's, let's stop, um, you know, tiptoeing around it and let's just go after it. Absolutely. And on the bradycardia note, uh, we're talking about the change in dopamine dose. Uh, nothing ground shattering or earth shattering, rather. Uh, dopamine is now 5 to 20 mics per kg per minute instead of 2 to 20 mics per kg per minute. And, you know, I wish that they would take it even one step further. I wish that they would divide it into a beta dose versus an alpha dose. Um, because I, I'm assuming the reason that they took out a 2 to 5 range is because that's our renal perfusion dose that we don't really use anymore correct well yeah and two is like spitting in the wind two does nothing two yeah two mics per kilo per minute of dopamine you might as well not be doing anything yeah. so I'm, I'm 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 as good with them going up to five but again like you said i think really think it needs to be parsed out five to you know five to ten um you know being the mostly beta and actually around 10 you're about half and half beta and alpha mm -hmm. and then once you're up to 20 you're primarily alpha. Yeah, because I, I think a lot of, especially new practitioners or people who, uh, who've been doing it for a while, but they haven't used dopamine in 15 years for whatever reason. You know, I think they have a lot of intimidation on where to start. So, you know, make it easy. Make, yeah. make, you know, make it, yeah, just make it, make it more time efficient and make it an easier decision. All right, there you go. Yeah, and the tachycardia update, um, I think this was a fairly good one. And I think it uh, it reinforced some really good things. You know, if, if you're looking back again, some of us old guys, when we we used to teach things like uh, kind of sneak up on it. You want to use the least amount of energy uh, to cardiovert someone so that you do the least amount of damage. Well, defibrillators are so good now, the peak current that they deliver give such a good amount of uh, therapeutic electricity without actually causing damage. So we really don't have to be so worried anymore about starting at a lower dose and then it not working and then having to go up from there. Let's just start at a high dose um, and, and uh, terminate the arrhythmia. If we are choosing to do electricity, it's because they're unstable. If they're unstable, they need something now. They don't need something. Just try it and then go up from there. So, um, you know, so the increase uh, energy level, um, I think, is, uh, is good. Uh, the expert consultation, I think, is really good. Uh, you know, this was something that um, Nick, Dr. Nick Johnson, who we actually uh, were able to interview, uh, several months ago, one of the things that he said that I really appreciated was just because we have the ability to do something doesn't mean we have to. So just because someone has tachycardia, for instance, even if they have VTAC and they're completely stable, do we need to terminate that VTAC? Maybe, maybe not. We, we have, uh, we, you know, we have evidence and we know that there are people that are in VTAC for days. Um, with, uh, you know, if you've got AFib with rapid ventricular response and you're at, uh, you know, 140, 160, but you're stable, maybe we don't need to be doing something for that. And the answer shouldn't be, well, we should just because we can. Um, you know, again, we are in a system of care. 
Uh, so the expert consultation being moved up and being a little bit more reinforced, uh, I think is really important. But if we are going to give antiarrhythmics, um, you know, the amiodarone 150 milligrams, but I think the important thing is here, and I think there's a lot of people that miss this, is that it's over 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. um, Brandon, I don't know, what, what do you see when you're doing ACLS and uh, you're kind of talking to people? Uh, do you, are people really understanding the difference between that rapid bolus in a in a mega code and the 150 over 10 minutes uh, on a on a patient with a pulse? Yeah, I, I really don't think so because I don't think it's something that is actually trained on frequently. I, I think that we just kind of whenever we go to training, when we do our research or research mega codes, you know, we're verbalizing what we're going to do. We're saying, okay, I want to give 150 milligrams of amio and move on. You know, they don't talk about the fact that, yeah, I'm going to put it in 100 mLs over 10 minutes and hang it as a drip for a, you know, a living patient, essentially. Yeah, and in fact, this is what amio this is amiodarone was developed for these types of things. The the bolus in omega code has never really been studied or or shown benefit. So the bolus is not the standard. It is over this uh, 150 milligrams over 10 minutes. However, you're going to give that in 100 milliliters. Um, or just a slow push. Then the other two are procainamide and sotalol. Again, if you've been doing this for a long time, you've seen procainamide kind of come and go. Uh, the problem with these is if you have a prolonged QT or you have what's called long QT syndrome, it is incredibly dangerous to give these drugs um, and there's some other drugs that, uh, that can, antiarrhythmics that can cause problems. I don't know anybody that's carrying procainamide or sotalol um, in the yeah, pre-hospital setting. And even in the emergency department, this is going to be more for electrophysiology or cardiology to um, kind of uh, decide. I don't think we need to be getting down to these in the pre-hospital setting. Yeah, it seems like the margin for safety is, uh, you know, it's, it's hard enough for us to find good time to train on amiodarone, you know, much less drugs that yeah. uh, have a, you know, a, a lower margin of safety so all right so next um as we talked about in the bls update they reinforce the importance of chest compressions in pregnant patients we actually have a protocol developed for cardiac arrest in pregnancy and the primary focus is uh is that after five minutes of no rosc that you still get the patient to a facility capable of perimortem cesarean delivery. Um, and I think, again, this is one of those things that has been around for a long time. It's just been never, it's never been put on paper. It's just, it's very important. It's very important to know the facilities that are capable of this and remember that you have two patients. And so this is kind of your Hail Mary pass to save uh, the second of the two if the mother is, uh, not responding to your resuscitation. Yeah, I think there's some there's some good evidence, uh, anecdotal or otherwise, um, of EDs, especially um, being able to do perimortem cesarean C uh, sections. Let me back, let me back that up. Mm -hmm. Let me back up on that. Um, so I think there's some uh, there's some good information, some good data, anecdotally or otherwise of. Uh, patients uh, who had babies delivered uh, perimortium uh, C-section and the baby actually lived. So like Brandon said, uh, these there are two patients here. And uh, while you're trying to resuscitate one, 
we need to be thinking about the other and what to do. And that's just going to change perhaps our scene time, our priorities, uh, those medications, uh, and uh, really just trying to do what's right for now two patients and not just one that we have to think about. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other one is ACS algorithm. So this is one we've uh, we, we've spoken about uh, extensively. Uh, we know that uh, you know over ninety percent of cardiac arrests, of out of hospital cardiac arrests, are caused by a STEMI, STEMI, and being acute coronary syndrome. This is really where EMS makes their money. This is where this is where we do what we do really really matters. Um, and when we can identify these patients, when we can start treatment appropriately and quickly, communicate appropriately and quickly, get the patient to the right place at the right time, in the right way, this is really where we're gonna we're gonna save lives. And um, you know, I, I do appreciate AHA kind of really backing this up. Uh, they've done there's you know extensive data. Uh, on this, this is absolutely irrefutable that when EMS starts with a patient having a STEMI, uh, that patient does much better. And so uh, there's a couple things that AHA has reinforced. This is not them inventing this. This is something that I know a lot of you are listening to this going, yeah, we do this. Like, yeah. And I, I you know, a mentor of mine said uh, one time, if you have to come up to the eight, to, uh, guidelines, the AHA guidelines, you're already way behind. So we should not be looking at this and going, oh, this is a new thing we should do. This should be reinforcing, hopefully, what many of us are already doing, or if nothing else, be able to use this as ammunition to, uh, to start doing this or continue to do it better. So um, they are really saying that the, the best practice is to take the EMS, take the patient directly to the cath lab. And of course, this comes with a whole host of uh, technology issues and process issues, but they are saying EMS directly to the cath lab is beneficial. Um, the other thing is we got to throw out this nonsense door to balloon time of 90 minutes. That's uh, ridiculous. Uh, everybody meets that. It is not an issue to get a patient perfused within 90 minutes of reaching the door. And so what they are reinforcing, which is a really good thing, is first medical contact by EMS especially. A uh, two balloon of ninety minutes. Yeah, that's that's pretty huge. Yeah, and 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 again, this is you know, there's some of you listening to this in big cities going, "Well, that's not difficult." And then there's some of you listening to this out in rural areas going, "We can't fly a patient to a hospital within ninety minutes." That is completely understandable. Um, and that ninety minutes is a goal. It should be what we're striving for, but of course, there are going to be different reasons um, that we can't do that. Uh, the other thing with acute coronary syndrome is uh, looking at this in three different areas, uh, which are STEMI and non-STEMI. Um, uh, unstable angina is the third part of acute coronary syndrome, but they have uh, separated this out into STEMI, high-risk, non-STEMI and intermediate low-risk STEMI. And I'm, actually, this is a really, really good thing, uh, not only for EMS, but for um, hospitals, uh, uh, for EDs on how to treat these patients. And this is, uh, this is a thing that I'm very appreciative to them because we think of things uh, as STEMI or non-STEMI, but non-STEMI is actually its own diagnosis. So a non-STEMI is actually an, an MI, like you know, a non-ST elevated myocardial infarction, or it is an MI, but it's not diagnosed on the EKG, it's diagnosed by enzymes. 
um, troponin, CPK, myoglobin, um, and, and those things. So we look at those in two different areas, in high risk or intermediate to low risk. High risk non-STEMIs, these patients can be just as sick, if not more sick than a STEMI, because a STEMI happens suddenly, the symptoms are severe. Typically, as you know, you, when you get a STEMI, you're asking the patients, well, when did the pain start? They're typically saying, oh, an hour ago, two hours ago. Um, and so they're getting treatment relatively early. But what you're seeing from non-STEMIs, if you really um, drill down with these patients, they're saying, oh, I've had chest pain for 12 hours or 24 hours or three or four days. Well, now they are that far into their MI and we still get these things of cardiogenic shock. Um, and uh, these patients can absolutely go into cardiac arrest. So there's a few different tools that you can determine whether or not a patient is high risk in the pre-hospital setting. Likely not. Um, they're certainly not going to get a diagnosis of MI, but you can have a high index of suspicion um, that this patient, even though their EKG is not showing ST elevation, um, and you can kind of look at these protocols on uh, you know, what are the recommended medications, and of course, um, you know, they are the minimum standards and uh, perhaps where you work, you're gonna treat those a little bit more aggressively than even the guidelines state. All right, so our next is uh, again dealing with, um, with ROSC, and uh, ROSC is not the finish line, but we do have to have ROSC before we get to the finish line. So the next thing is, uh, is targeted temperature management. Uh, this is something that's been around for many, many years, and it has been in the guidelines, but uh, they reinforced and changed a few things that I think is really good. One is they clarified who should get targeted temperature management. Uh, previously, it was saying uh, no purposeful movement. Well, we have, I can tell you in our system, we found that to be a little bit ambiguous, uh, depending on who was assessing the patient, what was actually considered um, uh, purposeful movement. So for instance, we'd have patients that came in, they didn't get targeted temperature management or therapeutic hypothermia uh, because the people in the ED uh, or as cardiology assessed these people in the ED, they thought, well, maybe it was a little bit of purposeful movement. Then they went to the uh, ICU or CCU and they realized, oh no, that's not purposeful movement. We need to do TTM. And now it's been delayed by several hours. So um, I do uh, like how they say now, uh, does the patient follow commands? If they do not follow commands and they're a post-cardiac arrest and above 18 years old, um, for most hospitals that don't have pediatric protocols, uh, so for in the adult world for ACLS, if they do not follow commands and they're greater than eight, over 18, 18 or older, they need targeted temperature management. The other controversy or the other discussion becomes on uh, what, uh, what temperature should we go to, uh, whether or not initially it was uh, 32 to 34 degrees. Uh, there was a trial that came out a few years ago called the TTM trial that showed that perhaps there was no benefit over 33, uh, between 33 and 36 degrees, uh, 37, of course, being uh, normo, normothermia. Uh, so keeping it at 36 prevents uh, temperature rise or prevents fever, and maybe that's all they need. I don't think personally it was a large enough trial. Um, so in our system, we still go to 33 degrees for most of our out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. So 
Um, I was uh, I was happy to see that their recommendation is between 33 and 36 gives a little bit of leeway um, rather than going to a strict number gives the ability for practitioners to make that determination. However, it is still important. So post cardiac arrests really need to be transported to a place that can do targeted temperature management. Hmm. Um, and so the uh, you know the other the other thing that's important that they reinforce are um, the use of EEGs so they can measure brain function and also seizure activity. And then something that we have actually been doing for a uh, for about ten years now, and I'm glad to see it in the recommendations or in the guidelines, is waiting for a neuro assessment for 72 hours. Um, we, uh, you know, we've had issues where neuro comes in to assess a patient who is being sedated and uh, under, undergoing targeted temperature management, and uh, it really does not give you a good neuro assessment or prognostication. Um, so I think that's uh, another important thing. But targeted temperature management still is uh, incredibly important. I think it still needs to be studied a little bit more uh, to know actually what the dose should be. But we do know that 24 hours is really where it needs to be, and then 16 hours to rewarm. Absolutely. All right. So uh, moving on down to stroke. So uh, this is also something that a lot of services are already doing, uh, but it may vary from app to app. But it is now considered the best practice for EMS to use a tool of some kind, some type of app, in order to determine large vessel occlusion following their determination of stroke. So whether you use the MEND exam, the race score, you know, whatever, whatever assessment that you utilize to get there, they are now recommending that it is best practice to use an, another app on top of that to determine your destination uh, because that's critical. I mean, there's, there's a lot of changes that are happening in stroke care now that kind of mimic the changes that have been happening in cardiovascular care. So, and Jason, I know you've had a firsthand account and assisting with that. So. Yeah, and I think this is um, this is important for EMS uh, to work with their local hospitals to find out who has uh, who has what therapies. You know, they're uh, thankfully they've opened up a little bit more. There's uh, you know we we know we have primary stroke centers which can do thrombolytics. We have comprehensive stroke centers uh, that can do thrombectomy and other interventions, and they have a neuro ICU and neurosurgery. But there's actually an intermediate um, designation there, which is a primary with thrombectomy. And so you may have a place that's not a true full comprehensive uh, stroke center, however, can still do mechanical thrombectomy. And so I really think uh, local EMS or individual EMS services really need to work with uh, their hospital systems. Uh, within their local areas or their geographical area to figure out if it is a large vessel occlusion, where is this patient going to be best treated? Some go, you know, 30 minutes, some go 45 minutes. Um, uh, some do a drip and ship. Some do, um, you know, telemedicine where you can actually speak with a neurologist or someone there uh, before you leave the scene to help determine. So this is uh, really a coordinated effort that everyone really needs to work closely with uh, to determine, number one, where is the best place? And then number two, how is the best way uh, to work through that system to get the patient there? 
And thankfully, uh, if you wanted to add a third piece to that algorithm, uh, the window, the time window for opportunity for a good outcome, um, AC or AHA rather has now updated the endovascular cath window to 24 hours. So that's that's pretty significant. Yeah, that 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 is significant. But I can tell you too that there are many things that go into that determination, and that is such a specialized area. I would really encourage you to not really use the complete AHA guidelines to guide everything that you're going to do with that. Um, there are just so many nuances to that, but uh, it is encouraging to see that the AHA is supporting that lar- that longer time frame rather than the shorter. Yeah, that gives us a, a lot of hope that, you know, if there is a known downtime of, or a, at least an estimated downtime, that, uh, that the patient can have a much better outcome than what, five years ago, 10 years oh, ago? Oh, yeah. I mean, the wake up so. stroke was uh, essentially, you know, essentially a death sentence. Yeah, absolutely. So, of course, as you as you talk to people, everyone's trying to come up with the latest, greatest thing, heads up CPR, which you notice is not really part of uh, or hasn't been mentioned in the guidelines. Uh, but the other thing is double sequential defibrillation. Uh, so there are some people out there that have tried this. It's, so if you have a patient who has refractory VFib, you're shocking them you know, biphasic at 200 or 360, and they're just not converting. There are some that have tried the double sequential, which is you take two monitors, you put the pads on, double pad on, you charge the monitors, and you try to defibrillate at the exact same time. And there's going to be people out there that say, oh, well, we've seen it work, and it works, and, you know, maybe it did work one time for them. Uh, so AHA actually uh, responded to this. They actually wrote this and um, essentially said that it's not supported or recommended. Um, and not that it's not recommended. It's just that there's not enough uh, data behind it. There's no randomized control trials. I'll tell you from a, from a physiology standpoint, the, re- the main reason that someone does not come out of VFib is because they have no coronary perfusion. If you can't fix that part, then all the defibrillation and all the electricity in the world is not going to allow that heart to be restarted. Because remember, what's happening with defibrillation is you're completely depolarizing. You're not restarting anything. You're just depolarizing and allowing the heart essentially to restart itself. If you have no coronary perfusion, it doesn't matter how much you defibrillate, it's not going to restart. Now, where we have seen this work, are in certain cardiomyopathies. Um, for instance, there's uh, HOCM or HOCM hypertrophic obstructive cardiomyopathy. We have seen that work in those patients and mainly be- in, in the hypertrophy patients because the heart muscle is so big and so thick that one defibrillation is just not penetrating enough. So. Those are very rare cases. Um, I would say you're going to be hard-pressed to um, find a service that's going to have two ambulances respond to a cardiac arrest or put two $35,000 defibrillators on, uh, on a unit because uh, of the few cases that this is going to work. So yeah. not saying it doesn't work, but it is saying like with, with novel with things, treatments like heads-up CPR, 
double sequential defibrillation, those kinds of things. Um, they're not going to make a recommendation until it can be studied a little bit more and a little bit more understood. So not that it doesn't work, but they're not ready to make a recommendation there yet. Absolutely. Uh, the next point, I think a lot of people are going to have, they may take issue with just because of uh, how we train, um, habits that we fall into during cardiac arrest resuscitation. But AHA, they have been talking about this for years. They've been talking about, and there have been several studies discussing osteomyelitis secondary to IV, IO access and uh, several other complications that are caused whenever a patient uh, has an IO placed. So not saying to not use IOs, but AHA is coming out and stating that IV access is actually preferred over IO access when possible during cardiac arrest resuscitation. So essentially, don't just ju jump straight to an IO. You know, just at least have a couple of attempts uh, getting an IV, maybe even an EJ, um, before you go straight to an IO. Yeah, I wonder wonder if um, this is a lot of service directors and a lot of people that are paying the bills are uh, <laughs> the ones going heck yeah because that's yeah. Uh, you know that's a hundred bucks a pop. Yeah, um, you know the w whether or not um, you know how it's preferred, you know whether or not it's preferred because of the way that medications are delivered, whatever. I'm a huge fan of this because I don't think medications and cardiac arrest work. So I don't think IVs and cardiac arrest matter much. Yeah. Um, and so delaying medications uh, and, and kind of uh, getting our mindset in chest compressions, defibrillation, chest compressions, defibrillation yeah. really is what's going to save lives. Um, not delaying that stuff to get the um, vascular access. So I, I do think that, and that's actually probably something that, um, uh, some others need to study. It's a little bit difficult to study, but um, I think uh, that's uh, not a bad thing. And I, and I know there's a lot of uh, old school guys out there that are going, hey, before IOs, you know, we used to get EJs on everybody. We used to get ACs on, on uh, everybody. It wasn't really that big of a deal. IOs are easier, um, but uh, the outcomes, I think, are, can be a little bit more detrimental than um, the risk is worth. And last but not least, again, this is this is kind of old news. So, but they are now that's no longer being studied. They're actually coming out and making a recommendation for it. So, the levels of oxygenation that we provide our patients. So, stroke and general care. They're saying titrate greater or to a level and the pulse oxygenation greater than ninety four percent. So, they're just saying at least ninety four percent on stroke care and generalized care. Uh, post-cardiac arrest care, and it's similar to what we were talking about with hyperoxia um, in the PAL section. During post-cardiac arrest care, we don't want to go above 98%. We want to keep it in between 92 to 98% on the pulse oximeter. And essentially, like Jason was saying, I think it's a very good idea to titrate to the appropriate end tidal level. Um, because at that point you have a much better indication of acid base balance. Uh, but the goal here is to prevent reperfusion injury, uh, which is still a topic, unfortunately, that is not very well understood. Um, I'm sure that there are some, some physiologists out there who, and man, if you do understand it, please reach out to us. 
but uh, you know there are reactive oxygen species that damage the tissue that was ischemic uh, following the influx of new oxygen. Um, and then this one's very important because these are the patients that we're primarily talking about here, your ACS patients, your STEMI patients, um, sticking to a, to a oxygen saturation of 90% or greater. So what do we mean by this? Essentially, that means if you have a STEMI patient and they're satting at 94%, that's okay. Don't slap a non-rebreather on them and crank it up to 15 yeah, because it's actually the reperfusion injury. You know, the reason we do temperature targeted temperature management is because we have lack of blood flow to the brain and cardiac arrest. Once you get reper, once you get ROS, you get reperfusion. Now you get a rush of blood flow, hyperoxygenated blood, um, and it can cause uh, you know it causes free radical production. It causes apoptosis, which is the programmed cell death. It causes increase um, temperature, and so actually reperfusion injury can cause way more problems than the initial insult. In fact, your body can do pretty well anaerobically. It knows how to do things uh, anaerobically, but you send a rush of oxygen there. It doesn't know what to do. It causes a whole lot of damage. Um, and uh, we actually see see a good bit of uh, reperfusion damage um, with these patients. So so let's just kind of let's just kind of recap on uh, some of the uh, changes and then some of uh, the things that are reinforced. So um, early use of epinephrine, especially in uh, non-chockable rhythm. So get that on board. If you're going to use it, get that on board early. We think that there may be some benefit there. For antiarrhythmics, you have the option of using amiodarone or lidocaine. Um, and, uh, and so... With uh, during ROS, we got to make sure that we do not cause hyperoxia. You know, one of the things that we didn't really talk about was intubation versus supraglottic airway in uh, during the arrest. And there's really not a whole lot of changes there, but we do know that during ROS, we do need to get that patient intubated. Um, but instead of really worrying about the pulse ox, let's really go off um, ET entitled uh, CO2. Uh, the change for bradycardia is instead of going to from point to point five, uh, just go straight to one. The uh, max dose is unchanged, um, and for dopamine, you don't have to start at two; you just go right to five. For tachycardia, um, we are uh, actually going to try to get a twelve lead a whole lot sooner. If it's unstable, let's go ahead and use electricity. If it is stable. Let's really go down the road of expert consultation before we um, start to terminate uh, one of those rhythms. For uh, pregnancy, after five minutes, let's start uh, you know considering not only the mother but the baby, and we really get to a place that can do perimortem cesarean section. Um, for ACS algorithm, we really got to work within this system to try to get them to the cath lab faster, not just for STEMI um, but for non-STEMI. And our goal is first medical contact till the time that that artery is open um, within 90 minutes. Targeted temperature management is still incredibly important. We really need to take patients not only with ROSC, but with the potential of ROSC um, uh, to a place that can do targeted temperature management. Stroke for large vessel occlusions. Uh, the best option for them is a place that can do endovascular therapy, such as thrombectomy. 
and our window now is up to about 24 hours on many patients and actually in some situations that may even be a little bit longer. Um, double sequential defibrillation is, no, is not necessarily recommended uh, and then uh, IV access is preferred over IO and really look at your pulse ox for whether or not we need to be giving oxygen, supplemental oxygen uh, to uh, patients either having stroke, uh, post-arrest, or acute coronary syndrome. You've been listening to MediClass Citizen. If you like what you heard, check out our website at www.mediclasscitizen.com. Also, find us on social media where you can follow, like, subscribe, and share. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and we also have videos on YouTube. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.